Hello and welcome to Wellbeings. Today's show is brought to you by Jackson White, Attorneys of Law, and by Birdie Scrubs, the most comfortable medical apparel on the planet. Today we have a great show. We have BJ Miller and Rebecca Edelman on. BJ Miller is a palliative care doctor who has practiced and taught in all major settings, including home, hospital, clinic, and residential care facilities. In his work, he draws upon his personal experiences with disability and his undergraduate studies in art history as much as his medical education. He speaks internationally on the themes of living well in the face of illness and death. He's been profiled in the New York Times, interviewed by Oprah Winfrey, Tim Ferriss, and Krista Tippett, and co-authored the book A Beginner's Guide to the End, which was published back in 2019. Rebecca Edelman, she is an entrepreneur, influencer, thought leader, and founder of the Edelman Law Firm and Claims Management, which was established back in 2001. Firm is a Women's Business Enterprise National Council and Tennessee Certified Women's Business Enterprise. For 30 years, Rebecca has concentrated her practice in insurance defense and business litigation, and the firm's practice extends through the tri-states of Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee and claims management nationwide. So um, we have a great discussion. We talk a little bit about Rebecca's path to meeting BJ and BJ's path to meeting Rebecca. We talk about the life experiences they had individually and collectively, which united them and helped them um, create what is called the Edelman Metal Alliance. Uh, we talk about the aims of the Alliance, some of the goals that the Alliance has, and we take some deep dives into compassion, both for others and for yourself. And we have a very meaningful and fantastic discussion that I know you will all enjoy. So here you go, folks. Hello, and welcome to Wellbeings. I am joined today with two Fascinating and lovely individuals, uh, palliative care doc B.J. Miller from Northern California and fellow attorney Rebecca Edelman from Tennessee, both of whom are accomplished and intriguing in their own right. And together they're working on an impactful project that I'm delighted to shed light on today and explore. So uh, B.J. and Rebecca, welcome. How are you both today? Thanks, Tyler. Hi, Rebecca. Well, hello, BJ. I am doing very well today. It is a beautiful day in Memphis, Tennessee. Love it. Love it. Um, so before, before we dive into your mutual project, uh, let's kind of, let's just begin with some personal introductions and, and we'll start with BJ. If you don't mind introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about your organization, mental health, and maybe a little of the path that led you to mental health and we can start there. Yeah, that sounds good. Just promise me, Tyler, you'll uh, throw something at me if I go on too long. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, there's a long, a lot of winding pathways led me here, but I'm trying to be, I'm trying to hit the high level notes to start. But so, yeah, so I'm, I'm a, what's called the, the my specialty in medicine is called hospice and palliative medicine. That's shortened to be palliative care in more common parlance. Um, it's a relatively new field. It's only been an official subspecialty since 2006 in the medical world. Hmm. But that doesn't quite do a justice. It's, it's, it's in a way a, a, a type of care, a philosophy of care that is probably the oldest 
kind of care before the last 150 years or so swept us into thinking we could fix everything, solve everything rather than accompany each other through things. Uh, so anyway, we can talk about that more, but so palliative care is my gig. I, I went into medical training in the first place, not out of a love of science per se, but looking for a bag of tricks that I could, where I could put my own experiences to use in a way to get in front of people who were dealing with hard things. Hmm. Um, so I, that, that impulse came out of my own injuries. Uh, when I was a sophomore in college, I, I got into trouble with some electricity on a commuter train um, and lost both limb, both legs below the knees and my left arm below the elbow and came very close to death. And so that, that experience really opened my eyes to all sorts of things, um, including a sort of a wider view on reality, uh, my own and, uh, and the world around me. And that, that was difficult and challenging and many, many things, but it ultimately landed me in wanting to uh, participate with fellow human beings, trying to get through the day, trying to get through their life, trying to make sense of their lives. Wow. So off I went into medical training and, and that has taken me into all sorts of fun places. And I've, I've loved this work very much, but increasingly uh, it's just the more you do this kind of work, the more you're in healthcare at all, I would imagine you two see this from sim a similar thing from your own angles, but it's hard to avoid the pitfalls in healthcare and how a system that's ostensibly meant to help us ends up too often being the source of the problem. And so here we are. And this is not just a medical issue. These are societal issues and there are policy issues, legal issues, medical issues, et cetera. And they all need to be addressed. And which is one of the reasons I'm so happy to be on this podcast with you guys, but, and especially working with Rebecca to kind of lean into some issues around long-term care specifically. So there's, there's all that. Yeah. I'll quickly say, should I say Tyler real quickly about what mental health is or shall we circle back to that? Let's let's come back to mental health. Yeah, um, yeah. there is a lot in there to unpack, um, yeah. uh, quite a bit. So so prior to your accident, there no no interest in medicine, and it was, so it was purely an empathic response. It seems like. Yeah, I think that's right. I I had been interested in medicine to a degree only through watching my mom deal with chronic health issues. She had polio, so I was around disability my whole life and touched into the healthcare world vis-a-vis -vis her being with her and devoted to her um, and something of a caregiver um, but no the short answer is no i had really no interest in being doctor that was not on my short list of things to do until i became a patient essentially yeah that's right and and as a doctor have you have you been able to experience um have you been able to give back in the ways that you thought you would you would be able to um, in some ways, that's a great question, Tyler. Yeah, thank you. Let me think about that. I, I absolutely, in some ways, uh, in some ways, it's gone much in broad strokes, much like I might have imagined. The, the hunch being that um, that empathy, to use your words, perfect word, is 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 so much of the is 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 the right wave to surf um, in healthcare and, and beyond. And that's the wave I rode into healthcare with, and that's the wave I more or less try to stay on. And it, and it does serve well. It does, 
it does work out that underneath a diagnosis or a situation is this vast shared humanity and we all struggle and we all suffer. And if we can work from that place where this place that we all share, that good things come. And I think if you were to ask patients and families I've worked with over the years, I think they would give you a similar answer for the most part. Yeah, I love that. Um, it's so it's so easy to dismiss um, experiences and dismiss. It's so easy to dismiss people when you say, um, "I ha- you haven't been through the exact same thing that I've been through, or you mm-hmm. haven't experienced this exact thing." But the underlying feelings are very much the same regardless of the superficialities and regardless of the external experience itself. We all know what pain feels like. We all know what suffering feels like. And we can all relate on that level, on that on that under the wave level, to use a metaphor. I love yeah. that. Um, right on. So well, we could we could keep talking about this, but let but let's um let's let's do talk about mental health now. That's that's kind of where you're at now. Let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, mental health is a company that my partner Sonia Dolan and I we started a, um, about a year ago. Um, it grew out of so for the last I don't know 15, 20 years, my career has moved from sort of academic medical world clinician educator in this academic center, moved out into the community and moved farther over the years, farther and farther out into the public, trying to sort of bridge the public with this healthcare system that's trying to serve them. Um, And that's led to writing a book and and all sorts of non-clinical activities to begin to flesh all this out. Um, And uh, my Sonia and I were, we were going to start this little nonprofit library, which we did start the center for dying and living. We can circle back there, but the whole point of that was to begin a, a, a curated sort of source of a place for resources. So people weren't left to just blindly Google their diagnosis and get lost in the in infinite rabbit holes of decontextualized information, et cetera. So we were going to start this little nonprofit library and then, and then COVID hit and the, what we realized that the world really needed something not abstract, you know, really direct service, and they needed access. And we know that palliative care is a beautiful, wonderful thing that really does does help people. We have plenty of data around this, but it's lumpy in terms of finding it in the U.S. It's health system dependent, geography dependent, and so the impulse here for mental health was to. So circumvent all the structures of healthcare and take advantage of this moment of telehealth and open, hang our shingle as a shop that people could access directly, no matter where they were, as long as they had a telephone or a computer. Um, and so that's what we've done is out of care, counseling and coaching online. Um, anyone can come to us and from any angle. And actually, you don't even have to be sick like you might need to qualify for a kind of a clinical palliative care program. And the whole impulse here is to make this kind of care accessible. And I should also throw in here to, to, to forge a different way of practicing this craft for the sake of the providers as well, because we know there's a, a lot to say about the connection between the patient and the provider and how that dance can go. Absolutely. So anyway, there's a, there's a quick overview for you. Thank you. And I think that there's one term we probably need to define uh, for for sake of clarity in this conversation, what what exactly is palliative care? All right, on. yeah, good good question, Tyler. And I honestly, 
I tried it. You're right on. I mean, even if we we're just all clinicians here, I'd still want to define it because there's so much misunderstanding about what palliative care is. So essentially, in the definitions, if you look them up, you know, CMS, Medicare, Medicaid has a definition, the Center to Advance Palliative Care.org, CAPC.org, all sorts of different definitions floating around out there, each with their kind of particular language. But the general gist is that palliative care is a, is, a, is a specialty, an interdisciplinary specialty that concerts itself around serious illness and attempts to improve quality of life and to mitigate or treat suffering per se, the subjective human experience of suffering rather than treating disease per se. And our whole goal in palliative care is to help people live as well as can be given their circumstances, whatever those circumstances may be. Oftentimes that means towards the end of life, but there's nothing about palliative care per se that's beholden to death or the end of life. We did grow out of, a hosp- of the hospice movement in the US in the 70s and 80s. That is our root. Uh, so we sort of started it with end of life care. And in a way, the field has marched farther upstream because when do we begin dying? And is dying really the problem or is, is suffering really the problem? So anyway, much to say about that, but just for your listeners to know, palliative care, yes, includes end-of-life care, but it's not only end-of-life care. The treatment of suffering. That's hmm. right. It's, uh, it, it's very much um, Eastern in connotation. I mean, we talk about mindfulness as, as the cure for, for suffering from perhaps a Buddhist perspective mm-hmm. or, or enlightenment, enlightenment as the end of suffering. Um, and palliative care, uh, what you're telling me is, is, um, a salve for suffering as well. Um, That's right on. That's well put. Thank you. Intriguing. Well, Rebecca, you've uh, been patiently waiting. Um, can you introduce yourself please? And tell us a little bit about the Edelman law firm and maybe a little of your path that led you to a uh, moment in time in which you found yourself partnering with an organization like Metal Health. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. So my law firm is, you know, the 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 central practice of my law firm is um, the representation of long term care facilities. So, along the spectrum of long term care providers, senior living providers, it could be from assisted living all the way to hospice. Along that whole spectrum, I have been working with the long-term care community for, I'm just going into my 30th year. So my relationship is kind of, um, you know, is multi-party. I am a sort of a direct legal and advisory source for long-term care facilities and senior living communities. Um, And then even within that ecosystem, you know, they're frontline workers, their administration, their management, um, ownership, real estate, you know, I kind of cover that whole, that whole area when it comes to legal services, defense services, advisory council, et cetera. And then, you know, I have a risk management component to what I do too. So all these years kind of seeing where the risks are in senior living, and we'll, we'll talk here in a, in a moment about the intersection between metal and my firm. And, you know, how one of the key risks that I've identified really early on in my practice in communicating with family members, primarily through depositions and interviews, 
um, is just was, you know, one of the key risks was this expectations of what end of life is, expectations about what life in a long-term care facility really is and those unmet expectations and the emotions that, uh, that you know, grow from, um, you know, from the, the idea of end of life care. And so, um, so I, I have a risk management practice also. So I, I offer kind of proactive risk mitigation strategies to providers, to their teams, um, and do a lot of speaking on this issue on a national kind of platform to, again, you know, continue on having these very important conversations about how to mitigate risk, because in the end, it, it translates to you know, improve quality of care. That, that's really what my firm does is it has found its role, its niche in helping move the needle to improved quality of care, patient safety, um, high quality end of life care being an important component of high quality long-term care. So I do that kind of work. Um, and then I also do claims work. I have an insurance company that I am involved with. So I kind of manage claims, uh, manage events for long-term care providers, again, along the whole spectrum. So that's kind of another silo of my work. And then I have you know, a variety of other, of other projects and, um, and the alliance with uh, BJ with Sonia and Metal is one of those projects. And so that's kind of what, that's the kind of the, what I do, the, the, why I do it and who I am uh, kind of comes from, you know, early years of being in practice um, as a lawyer and um, being very uh, drawn to the healthcare profession, um, doctors, the healthcare system. Um, I came from a family that was very focused on health and wellness and a dad who always encouraged me both by examples and then with his words to, to really kind of always be my best version, right? Whether that's physically, emotionally, spiritually, religious, you know, I came from a really great support network from him. Uh, and so I gravitated when I was early a young lawyer, you know, to the healthcare field and found myself as many young lawyers do, you know, being mentored by somebody who was a, a giant and, um, who had expertise in medical malpractice. That was his, that was his expertise representing doctors, healthcare systems, et cetera. And he is still a great mentor uh, mine. And I, I of course stand on a lot of, you know, real giant shoulders in my, in my uh, area of practice. Um, so, you know, I kind of was drawn there and then I got trained and then I started to see things in healthcare. And I imagine that and while BJ and I have never necessarily had this conversation, which I look forward to having it, I started to see, you know, all of these kind of dysfunctional ways that healthcare was being delivered, um, not just in hospital systems and acute care settings, but I started to develop a niche in senior living and uh, represented some of the some of the larger. Um, you know, public, large public long-term care facilities, nursing home facilities in my region, in the Southeast, which is where my footprint is. And I started to see kind of how the systems were built, how the structures were built, um, this idea of um, 
symptom treating, uh, diagnostic treating, and this really back then, when you think about it 30 some years ago, 25 even years ago, this holistic approach to particularly, uh, you know, the frail and the elderly um, really is kind of shockingly enough, kind of a new concept of uh, patient-centered care, you know, and BJ and I have discussed this before, you know, the, the fact that we've had to name it of late within the last decade that care for the elderly and the frail needs to be person-centered is just in and of itself, you know, kind of surprising. Well, what was it beforehand, right? So it's the beforehand that I came into it. Um, so I early on started to kind of see where I could create my own um, niche and advocacy and legal expertise in ways that were thinking way outside the norm as to the care delivery and long-term care. So I built my practice on that. I built my reputation on that. That's kind of where my thought leadership is. Um, and so that's kind of how I came to the practice of, you know, being involved in senior living. And then, you know, from a personal standpoint, you know, it's kind of, you know, we, we kind of resonate or radiate in, you know, in certain directions. And I've always radiated, you know, and, and been attracted to just the elderly population, um, probably because I had such a close relationship with my grandparents um, and, uh, and, and my dad, and particularly in his years as he started to age and as his caregiver. And so, you know, it's just a population that I, I fell in love with, you know, that has a very, um, uh, that has a voice that is not really well represented when it comes to the care delivery system. So even though I was on the defense side and defending, you know, allegations of poor care, I found my way in to start to make differences in actually the care delivery, the care delivery system. So anyway, that's, that's my, that's kind of my angle. And then I mm -hmm. guess on the next level personal note is I lost my father recently. And so, um, so his journey toward end of life is really what led me to BJ uh, and metal. And it's what led me to kind of escalating my efforts uh, in organizing some, you know, organizing a, an alliance of like-minded thinkers for end of life uh, who could, we could make a difference. And so that's the, that's the long and short of it, Tyler. All right. That is the long and short of it. Thank you for that. There's a lot in there as well. Um, we talk, you talk about a risk management practice and you, and you did, you brought up that you work on the defense side. Oftentimes we think of, of the defense attorneys as protecting the man, protecting big corporations and, and protecting the hospitals. And, um, uh, and then, but then from that, from that, you found a way into, um, focusing on what you call patient-centered care. Um, risk management, uh, that's, is that, is that a euphemism? What, what is the risk that we're, that we're managing in, in a risk management practice? Yeah, that's a great, that's a, that's an insightful question. So, I mean, if you just think about what risk is, right. And the kind of the definition of risk is, you know, some probability that there's going to be a loss, right. That's kind of the simplest definition of risk. So how do we in the healthcare system kind of manage risks? Well, the first thing we need to do, of course, is 
kind of identify what they are. So in my world, the kinds of risks I'm talking about are, you know, the risks of families that have expectations that nobody knows about and that remain either unrealistic or unmanaged. So, you know, uh, risks that come from family issues, risks that come from care delivery, right? Somebody just makes a mistake, right? So that's a, that's a risk. What kinds of systems were in place that might have gone wrong, like a systems and a kind of a human staff um, set of risks. And then there's just, you know, um, risks of, of, you know, the, the um, uh, kind of the regulatory risks and compliance issues. So there's like a whole array of different risks that we identify. And then we have an opportunity to go in and work with organizations to establish programs, for example, is a great, uh, I just presented on the issue of um, how to manage, to set realistic expectations with families in long-term care as a way to reduce risk. And when I say reduce risk, I mean financial losses, emotional loss, um, physical loss. You know, how do we how do we take that risk that we know exists and develop, you know, uh, strategic plans and programs for mitigating that? And sometimes it just comes down to, you know, knowledge, transfers of knowledge, um, collaborating with acute care settings, et cetera. So I hope that answers your question. It, you know, it became my it became my vehicle in kind of risk management or risk mitigation or, you know, proactive claims management, however you want to describe yeah. it. It's like, you know, it's, it's like kind the, of my way to, my way to kind of address risk before they come, you know, it's like, yeah. you don't want any great crisis to go to waste. Right. <laughs> so preventative care, so to speak. Um, yeah. And, and I, I like how, um, from an organizational perspective, uh, risk management, you know, it's in all likelihood, we want to protect our good standing in the community. We want to protect our financial coffers. Um, we want to make sure we're complying from a, re a regulatory perspective. But um, the end game, um, when, when those risks are properly managed, the end game is that the patients or residents of these facilities get better care and, and get better treatment. Mm -hmm. um, regardless of what perspective you're taking, that that's that's the ultimate outcome. In um, Tyler, it is the ultimate mission. In other words, when I'm, you know, approaching my, you know, my provider clients, that is the that is the goal. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's the starting conversation. Is you know, improve delivery of high quality long term care is the goal. How do we get there? So I love it's it. not a byproduct of it. It is the, it is the goal. Yeah. I love it. So, uh, you talk, you talk a lot about, uh, the, the elderly population. Um, and we also, we also brought up that palliative care is not necessarily, not, not necessarily end of life care. Um, so there's, there's an intersection here between what the Edelman firm does and what mental health does. Um, so the two of you kind of found some common ground on which to stand and, um, and you're forming this or you formed this Edelman Metal Alliance. Um, but before we jump into the details of this alliance, 
what is the let's say central unifying factor that that led you to forming this alliance how did you know that you wanted to partner on a project bj you want me to start yeah. there yeah yeah one well, yeah and i'll jump in yeah yeah right. that'd be great so um i was the instigator <laughs> yep <laughs> say that so I was I was really dealing with a lot of grief issues around my father and still am. Um, and knowing that his end of life and the end of life care and how I was as a caregiver, no longer as a lawyer, but as a caregiver, was kind of managing things and understanding things. And so I I have been anyway, the 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 kind of the nuts and bolts of it is that I had known of BJ, but I saw in just, I think it was in November or December of this year, he had an extremely compelling uh, op-ed in the um, New York Times that really um, was a kind of a poignant moment for me. And from that, I kind of started to formulate this idea in my mind of you know, facility-based palliative care, like how can we, how can I keep moving forward with the conversation about delivering palliative care, about high quality end of life care? And could BJ, could Sonia, could Metal be a partner in that goal to develop a program for and really raise awareness um, and, and discuss reforms and the right to really die well uh, and uh, how can, how, what was like a missing piece for me? How could I escalate that, 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 that goal that I had in my, in my practice? And, um, and that's when I reached out to BJ and he was kind enough to meet with me. And I think so many of the things that we share and the intersections and um, where, and BJ can tell you more about this, of course, is, you know, who he is trying to serve and who I am trying to serve and who we collectively are trying to serve in the end are all the same. It's people who are, you know, people and their families and individuals who are looking for relief from suffering, who are looking for uh, their emotional, their social, their spiritual needs and the impact that they, their disease has on them to be, to be brought to light. You know, to have a to have a partner along that journey. So, I think that's you know that's how it came. So I reached out to BJ. I put together a proposal, like all good lawyers do. I proposed something, mm -hmm. um, and then the rest, as they say, is uh, the beginning of history. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, it was such a <clears throat> it was such a welcomed, you know, stars aligned kind of moment for me and Sonia and for metal and potentially for our little field here, palliative care, because uh, I mean, a couple thoughts. One is, I don't know that we've talked about this, Rebecca per se, but as you're describing risk management and risk mitigation, um, you know, it's interesting comparing it's, it, our, the vernaculars of our, of our fields. And once you get past the words, there's so, so much in common, like we're saying, and in, in my world, that risk mitigation is really sort of like, I, I spend a lot of time with patients and family teasing out you know, necessary suffering from unnecessary suffering is, is another way of putting that. Some of the suffering of life is just part of the deal. Uh, 
It's not, it doesn't reflect a failing. It's just the way nature goes. It's part of the deal. It's part of life by any stretch, no matter how ideal your life may be. So there's that, that, that type of suffering, that kind of hardship, you know, the role for all of us is to kind of hang in there together, support each other, love each other through that. But then there's this other load of suffering, which is totally made up, you know, whether it's our sort of half-baked constructs or our sloppiness with language or just wanton cruelty or selfishness or whatever it is, there's all sorts of ways that we actually make life much harder than it needs to be. And that is very palpable in healthcare in the world of chronic. When it, once, once you're beyond the cure in the world of chronic illness or terminal illness, that is just palpable. Uh, and it's and it's demoralizing. So for those of us who work in that system, to realize that as you've gone into all this training, all this debt to do this kind of work, and to come to the, to realize that the way you're doing this work is actually adding, contributing to people's hardship rather than easing it is a is a brutal conclusion, but it's a very important one to be honest in front of. And so this idea of working at the systems level and the constructs level is a way to mitigate risk and to mitigate unnecessary suffering. And that's the, that's conceptually the big overlap between us is another way of putting it. But beyond that, the, the giddiness of Rebecca's reaching out had also to do with uh, it's very clearly in my field, uh, long-term care, post-acute care, long-term care setting is our sort of frontier. Palliative care grew up in hospitals, Hospice is mostly at people's homes. Um, there's increasingly outpatient palliative care clinics. There are places like metal now, et cetera. But where people are, especially our aging population, as that grows, as that swells, a lot of the action is in this post-acute and long-term care setting. And we know very well, so palliative care is even less well-described there, less accessible there, and probably only more necessary because of these huge gummy systems issues, et cetera. So to find, to, to be able to talk with Rebecca about leaning into that big world uh, was is just exciting as hell for us because that's the frontier. And then the last point is it's, it's extra exciting because we know these are not just medical issues. Again, these are not just healthcare issues per se, not just long-term care issues even per se. And you know we've been kind of pushing on healthcare policy for a long, long time uh, in my field to you know to mix results. Clearly, um, at the policy level, at the cultural level, things are going to need to be. We need to work across systems, across disciplines. These issues are way bigger than any one discipline. So the idea that I get to work with Rebecca, we get to work with Rebecca as a lawyer is just extra potent for us. We know just doctors by themselves ain't going to ain't going to get it done. <laughs> but doctors, caregivers, administrators, patients, etc., and and legal experts, lawyers, etc., well, families, etc., then we have a chance to actually change some things and actually make life less miserable where we can and more amazing where we can. So all that lit up uh, with Rebecca reaching out and boy, is it lovely having you as a partner, Rebecca, because my God, Tyler, she's so much better organized than Sonia and I am <laughs> together. So um, I love to talk and talk and talk about these things, but sometimes I can go in circles, but with Rebecca, there's a chance that we're going to actually get a lot done and that's thrilling. Yeah. I sense like it, that. Is, uh, it is a teamwork making the dream work. Hey, <laughs> hey, Tyler, can yeah. I 
digress into something that you mentioned that just for like a two minutes to discuss suffering. I, I, you had mentioned, and you know, again, BJ, you and I haven't spent much time on this, but this is a subject that I'd love to dive into with you is this idea of suffering in life. And because I'm what, you know, I mean, I guess I was raised in a Jewish conservative family, but my kind of part of my meditative and, um, spiritual pathway has been um has been through buddhism so you know i guess the idea of dukkha and the idea that life is suffering is kind of an interesting starting point when i'm considering the idea of palliative care and i've always kind of thought that when i've when i have um engaged in conversations about palliative care and the importance of facility-based palliative care teams and i guess just again a little bit of a a digression around suffering, but you know, the, the word dukkha just means suffering. Mm -hmm. And then just that the Buddha had talked about like three different kinds of suffering, all of which I think I bring up because I've learned from BJ and from the work that he's done and all the different things I've listened to and read that kind of his whole practice, which we can speak to that too, but his whole practice, which is yet another um, real level of significance about my desire to partner with them kind of addresses all these three different kinds of suffering, which is, you know, physical, mental pain, um, distresses from, you know, the, what BJ discusses with old age, sickness, dying, and then just the idea of impermanence and change and, the pain of, you know, losing and not wanting to lose those that we hold dear, things that we hold dear. And then just the last piece, which is that kind of existential suffering and the aims <laughs> of being a human being, right? Yeah. And I guess that's that's what the messaging through BJ is so um is so far expansive than what I have um, learned in palliative care from kind of the medical piece. So I wanted to thank BJ for that because it, it connects very deeply to, you know, the, the work I've done and the, the, you know, how I've myself evolved in the whole concept of suffering and, you know, letting go of that, which, you know, attaches us that causes the suffering. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there because it, yeah, I, and I'm glad you did. It sounds like there's definitely a resonance both on a professional and uh, philosophical and spiritual level uh, happening here. Uh, and you talk about, we're, we're kind of talking in abstract terms here. Um, we talk about the suffering that just is, and then we talk about the creation of unnecessary suffering. It's kind of like the second, the second arrow metaphor. I mean, the first arrow was you get shot and it hurts. And then do you want to stab yourself again with that arrow again and again? Um, uh, but, but we've talked about this kind of abstractly, but let's, let's maybe take a real world example so that we can really wrap our minds around what it is that the Alliance is, is trying to accomplish. Uh, BJ, you want to head in that direction or I can Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, the subject matter uh, is, as we're describing far reaching. Um, 
So to drill down a little bit, I mean, it may, so from, I mean, maybe come at this answer a little bit, Tyler, from what, you know, the kinds of folks I see, uh, what, what shows up in a pad, in a pad of care office, like mental health, um, you know, so some folks are coming to us because there's a, they've got to navigate this uh, quixotic, chaotic healthcare system. You know, and that's opaque. No, how to, how to talk to your doctor, how to ask for what you need from your doctor, how to hear what the heck the doctor is trying to tell you. Um, those are all very tricky endeavors and they're practically impossible in the sort of typical 15 minute clinical encounter. Sure. So, so much gets left off the table, uh, but well, so much gets, so much on the table that gets ignored or just no <laughs> space for it. So specifically, um, a lot of folks recently, a family came to us, you know, seven kids, um, disagreements among the kids, all of whom went mean well, of course, but each of them has a different understanding of what's going on with their mom's health. Um, and in that lack of understanding or different understanding, of course, a lot of confusion crops up. So with them, there's a lot to just clarify and get, and get the medical facts, the sort of social facts, get those clear the prognosis clear. So we're all talking the same language, but even once that whole family was clear on what they were dealing with, with their mom's health, there was still navigating the, she had moved from home to assisted living to a hospital for a leg fracture to a rehab setting. And now a rehab setting in a skilled nursing facility, Lots each of, of these places, which their own kind of, you know, rules, um, habits, um, effects, et cetera. And helping them sort of navigate that, just the logistics of moving around that in, in those settings and all that falls through the cracks, whether it was medications that fell off the list accidentally or pain that wasn't being addressed, et cetera. So there was, that, there was all that to, to navigate and coach them through. And then once we're uh, kind of getting clear from there, trying to get clear on what does mom really actually want. So as more decisions need to be made, whether to go back to the hospital the next time she has a pneumonia, for example, sort of advanced care planning. How do we get clear on what's important to mom and make a plan to protect her as she moves through the system? Because as we know, the defaults in the healthcare system tend to pull people into the ICU, tend to pull people onto life support, et cetera. And in some ways you have to advocate for yourself and at some point, very often have to say no thanks to that next medical intervention. And that is just very difficult to do and usually only happens in hindsight. We're pretty good at blowing past these lines and looking back and wishing we had made more a different mm -hmm. decision or wish we had known something different. So my job there now is to help them figure out what mom really wants, who now, by the way, is in the early stages of dementia and is not the most reliable historian, as we say. It's hard <laughs> to gauge what's important to mom as her sort of take on the world shifts. So yeah. there's all that to navigate. Um, so that's just one example of a family who recently came to us, but a variation on a theme for many, many folks. Gotcha. Uh, I'll stop there. There are many, many other examples, but that's one. Sure. In, in Tyler, I guess, just from a, from a practical standpoint, where BJ's expertise and the uh, services that he offers and what we are trying to do in terms of collaborating on the Alliance, here's kind of the best example. So, you know, the, the nursing home where this woman that BJ is um, and the family is working with, 
in that nursing home, the education around palliative care is essentially non-existent. So the way that the idea of how people are actually dying um, is either, as BJ suggested, either, you know, going to the hospital for, you know, a, a pneumonia that occurs at the facility, uh, and then that's where they spend their last days. But there's a, there's a missing piece in here. There's a gap. And the gap is, is that because there are no facility-based palliative care programs, there's either an option for hospice, right? Someone is dying and they get a hospice referral, which carries with it its own set of, um, you know, a set of um, issues to deal with. The idea of a whole palliative care team from the administration to social work to the frontline certified nursing assistants, et cetera, that facility-based palliative care team doesn't exist. And that's what we're creating. So that when the, the, let's say the family does have conflicts, you've got a team that's been designated in the nursing home that's been trained and um, to, to communicate with the family, to help resolve conflicts, to make sure that the wishes and the needs of um, our residents and the person who is dying has a, you know, has a quality end of life, a quality life and then a quality death. And that's where we are developing the gap. And in fact, we are just about to collaboratively launch a training program for certified nursing assistants, who are those caregivers on the front line. They're the day in, day out, activities of daily living. Um, and we are involved in the palliative care modules for a larger certification, a national certification for certified nursing assistants. So, so people who want to become a certified nursing assistant as a profession, um, Metal, BJ, Sonia, I, and another collaborator have created, are creating the palliative care model, which, which really is non-existent. It just doesn't exist. Um, and, and I, I think now we're seeing, you know, the, the, this focus, the specialized focus on end of life in the, in the nursing homes, in the assisted living facilities, is an incredible opportunity for us to create the kind of program that we think it should be, mm-hmm. right? Um, so anyway, that is a kind of a practical that, aspect of the alliance. That makes a lot of sense. And so you've taken you've taken one narrative or one example um, of mom with several kids, and uh, she goes to the hospital for a fracture and. And then is shifted from uh, from the hospital to rehab to maybe a group home to back home, and then now you're preparing her for the next time that she goes to the hospital. And there's there's a lot of of intersections there, a lot of different places where the rules change and the settings change, the even the laws change, um, and and you're helping one person navigate this, but then from that scenario you're extrapolating. Um, what the broader population might need so that years from now, um, when, when my mom needs that care, there will be a system in place that will better serve her um, and, and will perhaps prevent me from going through some of that unnecessary suffering. Um, there are, you, you, brought up, you brought up gaps, um, gaps in care delivery and you know, from, from my perspective, the, the primary gap that I'm, 
that I'm confronted with um, is is a payer source when when an individual transitions from a hospital setting or rehab setting to long term long term care. Um, long term care is hugely expensive, and um, very few of my clients uh, have the means to afford it indefinitely. And so, transitioning into a long term care setting. They need they need a payer source, and there's this gap here, and and they need it, and and the providers need it as well. So that's that's kind of the gap that that I've I have found to fill with professionally. Um, but all along the way, there there are a variety of gaps, and in a perfect world, if if the if the alliance comes to full fruition. Where do you see the alliance filling in gaps? What what are some of the some of the the vacancies that the alliance hopes to fill? Well, I can jump in there. You want me to start, Rebecca? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, one is and it's a great point, Tyler. There are many gaps of all sorts of flavors to to deal with here. Um, so, how to get. So one answer to the question is sort of how to get at the root at many of these different looking gaps. Uh, so two two points. One is as Rebecca was saying, our we're here to help sort of spread the the gospel of palliative care in some basic way and teach the basic parable of teaching people to fish rather than us go trying to swoop into each of these places and somehow make everything better per per patient. So one one way here is to work at, on training sensitizing administrators, staff, et cetera, um, offering true skills to navigate these predictable, difficult situations so that folks who are charged with caring for, for folks are, are better equipped to deal with the realities faced by those people. So, so training is a huge piece of this. And nowhere is that training more needed or I think probably going to be more effective then at the level of the certified nursing assistants, home health aides, personal care attendants. These are the lowest rung on the totem pole of professional caregivers, the least well-supported, the least uh, well-trained, uh, et cetera. And yes, yet most most likely the, the most impactful in some real ways. Mm -hmm. So that's a big answer to your question. I think another answer is also working at the, eventually at the policy level, uh, and this is where this is where it becomes not just sort of an interesting kind of historical footnote, but the idea that our healthcare system for the last 170 years or so, or you could really say to the Flexner report of 1910, is probably a better starting point for the for this clock, which is that healthcare decided to organize itself around diseases, and that the doctor's job and all its support crew of allied allied professions. It's really is to push back on disease. That that makes some sense to a point that's led to a lot of breakthroughs that science has developed and we've specialized to the point where we understand the body so much better now, et cetera. And so fine. But the fallout of that approach is that the person actually living with the illness or whatever is sort of incidental in this. So Underlying all these gaps, if we can help policymakers, administrators, and the public understand to help push healthcare to reorient around people rather than illnesses or rather than um, 
facilities per se, if we're focusing on people who are dealing with aging, illness, death, et cetera, then, we'll, then, then we have a lattice work, a framework to move with people across settings, et cetera, across illness states, across prognoses, et cetera. Then that by itself will reorganize policy to move with people in such a way that will obviate uh, probably not all, but many of the gaps. So those are two big answers to the question. I'm sure there's more to say. Oh, thank you for that. You know, um, we've been we've been looking at this from the perspective of the patient, um, but I but I imagine being that nurse who isn't trained with palliative care skills um, probably starts to feel some wear and tear from not being equipped to best do his or her job. Um, I I imagine that. There's a, probably a feeling of um, helplessness or hopelessness, not being able to to help a patient. I mean, you get into this profession because ostensibly you care about people, um, and and then you don't have the tools to take care of those people. That that's got to be having an effect, uh, a negative impact, really on on the caregivers themselves. And so empowering these caregivers um, is not only going to be helpful to the patients, but also helpful to the caregivers themselves, right? Amen, brother. Amen. And, you know, to to your point, um, you know, I mean, we have this conversation in our group um, frequently, Uh, And we're actually working with the National Association for Certified Nursing Assistants. They are one of our, you know, our collaborators and our partners, and they single-handedly are, you know, gathering up the next care force. And I think to your point, I think there is, and I, I, I know there's data on this. I know we have a lot of research on this, that there's a conflict um, with these nursing assistants and with rehabilitation too, if you've got a, a focus on rehab and a some type of a you know a, a, a curative model at a time in people's um, continuum of their lives that really are you know comfort and palliative care. There's a conflict. They know that they need to be doing something else. They know that it's not in a resident's best interest. And keep in mind, you know, as BJ mentioned, these. These nursing assistants are the ones who are in day in, day out in the most intimate relationship with these residents and build the personal relationships with them and their families. And they know that, you know, that it's that taking them to lunch every day when they're not eating anymore or listening to them cry out in pain when they have to get up and get a bath when they really want to just be lying in bed or you know, there are numerous other scenarios, I think, that create conflict between what they have learned, but what they just intuitively know about human nature and what they know about giving care and being caregivers. And I think that then translates, of course, into not just jobs and dissatisfaction and burnout and wear and tear, but I think it can also, as you'll see in so much, so many reports, that it results in depression and it results in um, you know, a whole array of emotions. And so these are, this is a really kind of an area of expertise for BJ too, is to care for these caregivers and give them tools. And uh, BJ has a, a really special, through the Center for um, Dying and Living, a, a very special 
um, resources that he offers free to caregivers, a whole caregiver series that is just exceptional. And it gives people an opportunity. I'll let BJ speak more about his center, but I think that's, a, again, you know, a real uh, impactful ways that each of us in our organizations and then together as an alliance are, are addressing that these that is a particularly strong gap, caregivers and caring their own self-care. Yeah, when you look at all the lives that this really touches, I mean, you have the patients and then the patients' families and the caregivers and the caregivers' families. It's really, it's, I mean, it, we're, we're talking about impacting just a huge swath of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, Vijay, would you care to talk about uh, the, some of the, some of the um, projects that you have in place to help with caregivers? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting so far at metal again, we're about a year in and the bulk of our clients actually are our caregivers, family members, friends. Um, I'd say maybe 65, 70%. So most, and then what, what ends up happening very often is then the, the patient uh, quote unquote often will be brought into subsequent visits. And then, you know, it, it kind of goes from there, but often the access point is the caregiver whether professional or, or, or informal, personal friend. Um, so it's just telling without, we haven't done much in the way of marketing just yet, but that's just who's finding us. So there's, mm-hmm. there's that. Um, but I think what we're talking about here uh, is it's opening up this relationship between caregiver and care receiver. You know, again, our language kind of makes it out to be like you're one or the other. But from our own experience, I don't, I don't think I'm saying anything here at all woo-woo or controversial, but if any of us have found ourselves in a position to be caring for another human being, you know it's not just a one-way street. There's a, there's a dynamic, there's a relationship, and the, the health of each party impacts the relationship. So you can't just treat these things as transactions and that the providers or the caregivers are there to, you know, to, to give a service Mm -hmm. per se, and maybe get paid for it or something like that in return. It's not such a simple exchange. Not when we're talking about life, death, suffering, meaning, et cetera. Not when the stakes are this high. So one of the things we're always trying to do here is open up that relationship, that dynamic. And that's what providers, professional or or informal are, are craving is 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 some is some realization that they're part of that ecosystem too it's not even if our even if it is just about the patient well the health of the caregiver is still deeply deeply relevant so we have to open up a different way of understanding what it means to care in this country yeah. um, it's not a selfless versus a selfish pursuit it's both it's that's a it's a there's a a loop that happens between caregiving and care receiving. So that's just back to the sort of abstract theoretical level, but we're really trying to make, we're trying to reify that, that all the time. So specifically, you know, we have our individual sessions at mental health, one hour at a time where we talk with folks privately, but we also have monthly free group sessions, webinars that are something between like a learning situation and a group therapy of of sorts. Mm -hmm. So those are monthly. We have a caregiver series included in those monthly webinars where we address issues of caregiving specifically open to the public. Anyone can join low stakes. And now we're starting just, just kicking off another uh, 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 effort for caregivers specifically, which is 
one cohort at a time, we were focusing on th- you know three caregivers per cohort with one of our uh, palliative care clinicians as a facilitator so that we can move as a small group in a more intimate way and in a more private way and share each other's experience and learn from one another. So these eight cohorts of eight caregivers at a time last for three months uh, and we're just kicking that off now. So that's, a, that, that's another effort here. And then aside from all that, We've also over the years worked on uh, specific curricula, as Rebecca was referencing, specific for home health aides, direct, uh, certified nursing assistants, and personal care attendants. We had worked on a curriculum for that population a few years back, and now we're sort of dusting that one off and, and updating it for now. Uh, and that's the work that we're going to specifically really uh, build on together with, with Rebecca. Um, so anyway, there's a little panoply of what we're doing. And then I guess the last thing on that list would be just doing like what we're doing here, Tyler, which is what we love being invited on because some of this is just, you know, making it safe to think and feel and talk about these issues. Um, these, yeah, maybe a lot of us are in denial about our illness or death or whatever else, but more of the point, I think I run into more people who aren't in denial. They just don't know how to talk about these things or where it's safe to. Mm-hmm. So the last thing on our list is just doing more and more sort of public advocacy, talking about these things, writing about these things, so we can all find ourselves in this mix and not somehow find a way to being ashamed to be sick or embarrassed to be a caregiver or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I, I think of of the caregivers that, that I work with uh, and more often than not, it's a it's a spouse or a, or a child, an adult child who's providing care for you know a spouse or a parent, and and um, a word that comes to mind is is compassion. You know, they have to have compassion on the person they're caring for. But one of the things that I that I see very frequently is is caregivers um, who end up needing the care themselves because they they put so much into the process and forget to take care of themselves and then all along the way say oh I should have done this differently or I if only I would have done this differently and, and again hindsight's 2020 but they look back and kind of lash themselves for not doing it in the air quotes right way and so really that compassion that we talk about kind of has to start with yourself um, you, you, if you can't give away what you don't have, so to speak, and without that compassion on yourself, uh, it's hard to offer it to others and it's hard to receive it from others. And there is that, that loop, uh, that, that, that transpires. So how do you, how do you train somebody to do that? How do you train somebody to have self-compassion? Hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's a great, great point, Tyler. Uh, Rebecca, were you about to say something? No, I was just doing up. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. It's a huge, huge point. And I, I don't know if it's as ironic or what the right adjective is, but healthcare uh, is littered with people who have this of a selfless act. And this leads to this, there's a phrase in my world called pathological altruism, <laughs> where, you know, where, where this idea that I, as a caregiver or as a provider, I'm supposed to have no needs of my own, that I'm entirely here to help the existence of another person, and that I 
you know, that it's entirely a one-way street and I just pour myself into my patients. Um, well, guess what? You know, that, that doesn't really work because we are all actually uh, human beings. We have needs, we have desires, we have illness, we have all sorts of things ourselves. Mm -hmm. So part of the work here is trying to obliterate or at least perforate the lines between sick people and well people or patient or caregiver, all these sort of false distinctions that keep us on one side or another of a fence. So we need to kind of perforate those fence lines and uh, like we like we were saying earlier, sort of speak to this common humanity underneath there. But we also have to be much more savvy about the realities of caregiving, and uh, that again, our language doesn't suit us well. Well, here, caregiving, care receiving. So uh, yeah, I don't remember where I was going with all that, Tyler. Oh, oh, to say, yeah, back to your point about compassion. Well. <laughs> I, and I, I, I will admit I struggle with this mightily. I have absorbed that sort of pathological altruism model mm -hmm. and that I'm not here for myself. I'm here for everybody else. This sort of service to a fault kind of view. And it doesn't work. Ultimately, I burn out. We burn out in that model. And like you say, if you got nothing in the tank, you've got nothing to give. And then what creeps into that mix, of course, is self-loathing and self-critique and demoralization and down you go. It's yeah. not just a matter of being tired or busy. Your sense of self falls apart and you can get really lost very fast in that, in that math. So we have to kind of, the, 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 the fix is naming it like we're doing here. And then opening up, like inviting the caregiver, the provider's feelings, their thoughts, their wishes, their desires, inviting those into the mix too. Those are not aside from the point. They're deeply relevant to this exchange happening. So a lot of the work is naming it, inviting their thoughts and feelings in the mix, supporting them, bearing witness for each other. So we get to see our struggles. We get to feel seen and not so dang isolated. And so much of the rest of it flows from there. If we can, if we can open up that space, then we have a chance of kind of, 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 of riding this sort of wayward ship, this pathologically altruistic ship that we've been on. <laughs> and Tyler, if I can just add one thing to, to all of BJ's points, if you can imagine that, um, that sense of, um, you know, um, uh, that's that collection of, focus on the caregiver in the facility is a great example of how we want to create a facility-based palliative care model that goes beyond what you would see in a, you know, a study somewhere, right? Yeah. This is really incorporate to incorporate these kinds of conversations. How does the team take care of each other and how do they take care of others who are there in the community um, you know, involved day in, day out with death and dying and living and end of life. And so I think that that's a, again, you know, kind of a, a unique component is to be able to take all of these experiences that BJ has too with, and this cohorting, I think BJ is just going to be the next step for those kinds of conversations and having that safe place for everybody to be seen and be heard. And, uh, and also in the facility, we want to encourage that, you know, um, for them there to be some type of a, um, you know, a component of the, of the palliative care team that helps support each other. It really sounds like um, giving folks a place to be heard is, is really central to this conversation. Um, a place for the caregiver to say, 
these are my needs and these are these are the struggles that I have and and then have others uh, in a in a communal sense say me too and and then mm-hmm. just having that connection um, and, and feeling a sense of community and understanding that you're not alone in this and 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 also identifying that many of the needs that you're trying to address in the person receiving the care are also very much alive in yourself and there's a connection there that that can happen right and, on. and tyler let me just one more point because this goes to kind of the policy and the culture change around what we're talking about is you know this pandemic has you know shine the very bright spotlight on our caregiving nation. And now there is a sense of urgency and a sense of focus on these same folks who have been marginalized throughout the course. I know in long-term care, BJ, you have a, you know, of course, other experiences along the continuum, but I know that in senior living, that this is a, a group of caregivers that have been, you know, in senior living have been marginalized, diminished, um, unappreciated, unrecognized. And so again, you know, this kind of coming together of this urgency in the country for an increased care force, I think it's going to allow us the opportunity to incorporate, you know, the larger conversation about the caregiver caring for themselves, this idea of compassionate, um, you know, self-care. So I'm hoping, uh, I mean, that's, that's what we are, trying to, uh, you know, um, ride on is that sense of urgency right now in the nation and, and beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I love where this is going. Uh, many, many of, many of my listeners work in long-term care facilities. So, um, how do, how do you see, and you talked about, you talked about, um, the pandemic kind of shining a light on on the sense of urgency there is for change among the, the caregiver uh, population but um, how do you see end of life care uh, how, how is it being dressed perhaps pre-pandemic and then how what how is the pandemic shine shine the light on that and, and what changes need to happen in in the arena of end of life care well I'll, I'll point out a couple of things, BJ, I know from my kind of legal and regulatory perspective. So, you know, this idea of, of the, the lack of prioritizing the care for our aging population is nothing new. Um, it's been around for decades. Um, the fact that, you know, the 40% of those who have died in the nation due to the pandemic have died in a nursing or long-term care facility uh, again, and in some ways villainizing the facilities for this, as opposed to, uh, you know, unpacking the regulatory structure that, and the funding structure that defines how we care for our elderly. So this has really forced um, uh, many positions on this from a multitude of different voices in all sorts of ranges of care and disciplines, palliative care, um, medical, nursing, etc., um, and you know there are reforms that are being proposed. There are advocacy um, platforms that are being you know um, 
um, created uh, all to address workforce, to address funding, to address all these issues now that after 30 years, 25 years, you know, now have become at least have, have moved to the forefront of our national conversation. So, you know, I think that's, that's where we are. Um, and now you can't avoid it. So, I mean, it's, it's just, it is part of our daily conversation about what we're going to do in our, um, in our aging population. Um, so whether that's more home-based care, whether that's, you know, nursing home services in community-based care. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of ideas going around, but, you know, for us, or at least, you know, my hope is, is that whatever we are building and the different um, conversations we're having will, again, move the needle even ever so slightly to assure that, you know, there is a quality end of life care um, and that there can be funding for that. Oh, thank you for that. Um, can we go back to something uh, at the core of all of this? I, I really think uh, is compassion. Uh, I, I kind of it just we've used a lot of words to describe it, and we've gone ar- gone around it a lot of different ways. But really, when we're talking about reducing suffering, mitigating suffering, um, compassion is is the tool by which we do that, um, and. And caregivers can have uh, can can provide so much compassion, and, we, and you talk about that pathological altruism. Um, that that leads me to believe that there that there can be a, a fatigue, a compassion fatigue. Um, how does that play out? Uh, what does compassion mm-hmm. fatigue look like, and how how does a caregiver protect herself or himself from that? Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's huge, and let's 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 maybe take a quick second uh, to find compassion. I mean, literally, the Latin root is it means you know, suffering with. Mm-hmm. So that that's what it is, and it, it basically the skill set in so many ways, uh, a skill set of compassion per se, is 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 really a non-abandonment it's it's a not running away from things that are hard or things you can't change whether that's external to yourself or internal to yourself and it's a fascinating other sort of overlay happening these days beyond the pandemic which is the comment the 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 concomitant sort of rise in social justice issues I don't think those are two major issues that are somehow separate that just coincidentally happen to be happening at the same time. I think what we're seeing here is one way and another, the structures, the way we've been leading our lives, the structures around which we function aren't adequate. Don't, don't, they are inadequate in that they do not address the full scope of reality that we act that we people actually deal with we're caught in between these two worlds the world that we actually live in and the one that we're sort of supposed to be living in or something like that and all that's being called out now and while inclusion there's so much to be done around inclusivity on across racial lines across socioeconomic lines but also on in, in internally so many of us, most of us probably have partitioned the hell out of ourselves and there are pieces of ourselves that we hide, that we don't feel comfortable showing, that we're ashamed of or whatever else it is. 
But back to this point about compassion and this moment in time, I think we're also, I hope if we heed the call, we're also being called to include more of ourselves in everything we do. And then we can relieve some of the tension that we, we hold trying to keep ourselves in check. So, yeah, so suffering with, I mean, you know, the skill set there basically is not running away back to this, like from parts of yourself or things outside. And that is really hard to do. That's why I think in healthcare, doctors just default to, well, we can try this new machine or we can, we'll give you the injection of this or that drug or whatever, because the idea of doing nothing is so offensive. Like I got to do something. Well, actually sometimes no, doing something is the exactly wrong. It's exactly just kicking the can down the road. Sometimes the response is to actually just be with someone and not run away from them even though you may be embarrassed that you have nothing more to offer them. That's compassion. That, that's, that's a hard skill to develop. Um, so I just wanted to, to name that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, back to your point now, Tyler, about compassion fatigue. Well, I think a lot of that comes from, so there's burnout and that's sort of burnout is the pain we feel about bumping up against an, a system that isn't adequate to the task. So burnout tends to reflect the system in which we work. Compassion fatigue is where we as individuals are struggling to feel anything anymore for somebody, no matter how, you know, matter how, whatever they're going through. I caught myself in uh, moments along my career where I am deeply in compassion fatigue, where, where for someone to honestly get my emotional response their situation had to be so extreme so outrageous before i could even actually feel anything for them uh, so there part of that was just a volume issue we expect way too much of our clinicians it's just outrageous how much we expect of, of medicine so part of it is not we're not asking medicine to somehow do more we're asking the message here is asking medicine and healthcare to do differently um so you know, uh, but back to compassion fatigue, sorry, I keep <laughs> roaming. Um, the part of it is a volume issue. A part of it is a misunderstanding. I think a lot of us, when we feel the feelings of another, when we have that empathy moment, um, are, are, we, we think if we're not careful, we think we have to do something. And so what I need to always remind myself of is that compassion, like, no, Again, I'm just, I'm not being asked to fix this person's situation. I'm asked, being asked to feel something with them. That's it. That doesn't, that, so I, I get compassion fatigue. I look at my to-do list. I'm like, God, how there's no way in hell I can do this or that thing. That's not, that's a miss. That's a, that's a misunderstanding on my part. That's not compassion necessarily. What I'm being asked is feel something. And if I can remember that, then I've got plenty of feelings to go around. I don't have plenty of hours or plenty of actions to go around. Does that make sense, Tyler? It you, does. You know the, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And thanks for defining that, the, the suffer with. Um, and, and that really comes back to, um, it really comes back to self, self-care or self-compassion. I mean, when we think about um, mindfulness, um, the whole concept is just being okay with what is it's it's not forcing thoughts out it's not not thinking about things it's just being okay with what is and it's it goes back to we're human beings not human doings um 
Uh, yeah. We're just we're just okay with the bodily sensations that we happen to be feeling at that at that time, without mm-hmm. without running away from it. And I think that we're trained. Well, I I know that I'm trained, and uh, and I think that we're all trained. We've all trained ourselves to kind of numb out sensations, not feel things, feel the things we like, curate a group of of things that we like to feel so that we don't have to feel the things that are that are underneath there the underlying current that that probably connects all of us um but it all starts with sitting with our own feelings and and if we can't do that we can't really feel any how can we be expected to feel with other people if we can't even endure right our on. own feelings right right on so sorry to interrupt you. I, yeah, <laughs> I get excited on this one. I mean, this is a very teachable thing in medical school. Like your homework is to deal with yourself, is to address your own life. It's not like get to it if you can. That's your frigging homework. There is nothing more important than that if you want to hold yourself out there as a therapeutic agent to, to anybody, the way to get there is through your own life, through your own experience, not around them or aside from them or, or despite them. Yeah. Yeah. Is and how, how often is that taught in medical school? <laughs> it's not. It's not. I mean, it is increasingly as palliative care has ascended into mainstream medicine. It's, co- it's coming, but most medical schools will have palliative care as an elective, which is a little ironic. And the issues we face in palliative care are universal. You know, so we have eight weeks of uh, obstetrics and gynecology, even though most of us are never going to deliver a baby, but mm-hmm. we have no weeks of palliative care and because all of our patients will suffer, all of our patients will die. So there's, there's a disproportional, there's a proportionality issue in medical training that is improving. Palliative care is, is ascending, is making its way deeper into medical school and nursing school and social work, et cetera, curricula, but there's a long, long way to go. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and really it seems as if palliative care, or at least we can use different language to describe it, but having compassion, self-compassion, taking care of oneself should be taught not just in medical school, but in elementary school, you know, right on to everybody. Um, to that point, um, let me, let me ask you to both of you to kind of pull back the curtain just a little bit. What do you do to help yourself stay present with your own feelings and your own experiences? Rebecca, you want to go first? I sure will. Or maybe we, I'll go, you go, I'll go, you go. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it's a great, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to have kind of embarked on, um, the journey really early on in my life for a variety of different reasons, kind of seeking out ways to know myself better. Um, so I have a, you know, I have a, a, a meditation practice and a yoga practice. Um, and then I have these daily reminders. In fact, one of the things that I kind of have these go-tos that, um, that, that, help me stay aware on a daily basis. And one of them is, is that, you know, this idea of the importance of hellos and goodbyes. Hmm. And I know that we, I know that we, um, and I, I recognize that in such a, such a unforeseen level when I was saying goodbye to my father. And, but then what I recognized as I was exploring my emotions about hellos and, and my ultimate goodbye with him, at least in this world, 
um, is that every day we encounter an opportunity to say hello and goodbye, whether that's daily at the office or when you're in the grocery or on the phone with someone, that those interactions of like engaging and then disengaging, you know, how do you want to be, how do you want people to feel when they're, when they've had an encounter with you? And I, I think that's, that's something that I stay extremely intentional about every day. Um, and I find that if I can stay in that place and then, then everything seems to really work well um, for me. And then, you know, I have all sorts of other things, you know, I stay physical and I love my work. Um, I love the people that I partner with, you know, I have an overarching, you know, happiness in, in life. Um, I have a family and a son who just brings me great joy. So I connect with him on a frequent basis. So for me, it's really about that, like coming from my heart in all that I do um, and then engaging in those practices that help me cultivate my heart space, um, whether that's meditation or doing nothing or reading or, um, but that's really what I, how I make my choices, you know, is this really good for my heart space? Is this going to make me more expansive and, allow me to get more into infinite space. Cause if so, then I'm, I'm good for myself for sure, but I'm even a greater servant for everybody else. So that's how I, that's how I keep it rolling, Tyler. I really like that. And you touched on so many good things. I, I, I took one note. Um, I, I could have taken plenty of notes, but one thing I wrote down was how do you want people to feel when they encounter you? Uh, and that really resonated with me as, as some, a new thought for me to, to, for me to kind of chew on because um, the, the, the exchange of energy that happens between two mm-hmm. people, it's palpable. And, um, and, and it, it's, it's an embodiment of, of all of those practices. Everything, everything that I do from a, from a physical health perspective, emotional health, taking care of, the, of everything, it all uh, can be felt in, in those exchanges. So how do I want people to feel, uh, when they encounter me is, is a, a new, a new good thought for me to, to stick it in my brain. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. And I'll, I'll just simply, I mean, for me, obviously one thing to notice, these are all works in progress, you know? So that's important to state here. Uh, it's not something I, I don't think this is an issue that compassion or, the self self other i don't think these are things what we master per se but we devote ourselves to over time Mm -hmm. and we learn as we go so i'm a work in progress very much for me uh, you know the two for me getting outside is by itself magical um i I continue to choose to live in places where the landscape really just moves me deeply Mm. um i continue to love my time with animals and non-humans in a way to stay out of the word of the world of words a little bit or protect some time a word some wordless time Mm. but also to touch on um and i think the thing we've talked about today are these are there's so much we're discussing here is shared humanity but there's even a bigger piece than just uh, uh, what people share and that's what all of the rest of the natural world shares too we are connected in myriad ways to trees to plant i mean to everything you're part of a part of a planet 
I'm not just a part of a species or part of a country. Um, and so I try to spend time in those great, huge, uh, those, those huge zones un underneath everything. Um, that has a way of kind of keeping me a little bit oriented and keeping things in perspective. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, I mean, I think for me, the big ones, my big, my big impulses that I got to really, that I, that I'm actively working on, I have a really gnarly self-critic mm -hmm. who's just a bastard. And, uh, <laughs> I can relate. So I really have to, I got to get really good in a mindfulness way of seeing, seeing when he's come in the room and just watching him and listening to him, but also trying to keep him in his place. Mm -hmm. That's just a, that's really an awareness thing. Uh, and then there's the second impulse in me that historically needs a lot of help is this, this, I have I, somewhere along the way, I bought into this sort of this idea that if I really wanted to be good for someone else or good to someone else, that the way to do that was to shrink myself, that, that self-abdication was somehow my gift to other people or something ridiculous like that. So I have to really watch when I'm minimizing myself um, if I, if I'm doing that, cause I, I seduce myself into thinking that's good for anybody. Cause I, I know it's not, but I, I'm pretty, I will do it seamlessly. So mm. those are the, those are the things I got to watch and I'm working on. And the way I do that is, is just, just shutting up <laughs> some of the time anyway. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, works in progress. I took a note there and, and I think you've touched on, um, it, a concept that I've I've heard described as um, being mindfully mindless, and and that really I think ties back into this self compassion element because you you talked about this bastard of a self critic. I have that guy too, and he shows up often. And my impulse is to be like, ah, oh, there he is again, and and kind of lash back. You know, why am I doing this? And really, that's just kind of throwing fuel on the fire, right? And so just being aware, um, it, it just, just noticing that it's, that that dude's present and, um, you know, right, right, there he is. And that's okay because, because there is no wrong here. I mean, this is right right now, whatever is happening is right. So there he is and that's okay. And, and I've found that as I've been more aware and noticed when he takes a seat, um, he shows up less often and it's just, just, just the attitude of being aware um, is is um, being compassionate with myself, you know, not being my credit. Right on. Yep. Amen, brother. Well, I know everybody's time is super valuable, and I appreciate the time you spent with me today. Um, before we go, how can um, people learn more about the Alliance? How can people track you down? Um, is there anything like to share to that point um certainly can uh, i'll let bj share with you his contact information over at metal i can be reached if you want to check out my website at www.edelmanfirm.com and uh information about the website uh, about the alliance is posted on some blogs and as we develop my guess is we'll be also developing a um you know a home for the alliance uh so and yeah, you can find me there. You can find information there. All right. Thanks, Rebecca. Yeah. For us, uh, yeah, Metal Health, M-E-T-T-L-E, uh, metalhealth.com is where to find us. We're um, also on Instagram and Twitter. 
and uh, increasingly doing more little video, little little videos too that show up on YouTube. We have a little YouTube channel, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm doing some even s- smaller stuff myself on TikTok. Just just trying to throw <laughs> little bits of information out in the world, and that can be you know. So those those are some some ways to to find us. Very cool. I'm going to go and find you on TikTok, BJ. Yeah. I know I shouldn't have said that. I was asking for you trouble. You shouldn't have said that. It's more people. like, you will not be impressed. It's more like, <laughs> hey, let's, we'll do anything. You know, hey, we'll try just about anything with these good intentions. Yeah. So, yeah. That's awesome. yeah. I gave, I gave TikTok a whirl. My brother and I launched a, a medical scrubs company a while back and we, tr- mm. we were told that TikTok is, you know, the biggest social media platform in the world. And, I gave it a whirl, but it was just, it was too much for me. Uh, yeah. I had to step I don't out. know if that's going to be our way either. But, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Um, it's been great having you on. Tyler, thank you, thank you Tyler. so much. All right. Pleasure. Being great being with you, Rebecca. And thanks for the thanks excuse, same. Tyler. You betcha. You've been listening to the Wellbeings Podcast. Tune in every Thursday to hear the latest episode. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As always, thank you so much for listening.